We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. I wanted to jump in quickly to let you know about the release of the audio version of my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, narrated by David A. Knesser. If you want to support the show, you can buy it wherever audiobooks are sold. Links are also in the show notes. Now on to my guest for today, Roy Harmon, founder of Advertoscope. Digital marketer Roy Harmon recounts how he went from law school to marketing by way of political campaigns. After running for office himself, he learned that he loved marketing, and he's since built a career helping companies plan and execute marketing campaigns. When COVID hit and work for his employer dried up, Roy struck out on his own, founding Advertoscope a digital marketing campaign company. According to Roy, finding your why, the inner motivations for doing what you do, can make the difference between success and failure, whether you're a politician or an entrepreneur. We also talk about the limits of metrics in marketing and the importance of simply establishing a baseline for public relations and marketing before looking at analytics. Since many of the businesses he works with are about solving problems, one of the first challenges of good marketing often starts with educating people about the problems and solutions that you may offer. Now, let's get better together. Roy Harmon, welcome to the podcast. 
Thanks for having me, Jari. I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm. You know, I'm excited too. You're you're like the first guest that actually brought up the story grid um, that is not part of the story grid. So I <laughs> cannot wait to talk about <clears throat> you know your aspirations as a novelist and all the good stuff about Advertoscope that you're doing and all that. But before we do that, as I always like to do, um, why don't you give us a little background and tell us how you got to be doing what you're doing? Yeah, I got started, I, gosh, I guess it was 10 years ago. I, I was in law school and I wanted to go into politics. And I, so I worked for a political consulting firm and I, uh, I ran for office and did all the things that an aspiring politician does. And throughout law school, I got more and more interested in the marketing side of things. I worked for a great uh, company. I was an intern at uh, Push Digital, which is a South Carolina company um, that does political marketing. And so after law school, I just, I went, I went into politics. I started working for a, a Senate campaign. I moved to to DC, worked for some, some big nonprofits up there. And then gradually just got burnt out with all of the, the political stuff. And so I, uh, I segued out of that. And when my, when my wife was, uh, when my wife found out she was pregnant, we decided to move back to South Carolina to be close to our family. And that was a, the perfect time for me to get out of politics altogether. And, uh, standing where I stand today with the current political climate, I feel like that was a great decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Stroke of genius in my opinion. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so I did, I, I moved into doing PPC and, uh, eventually started working for a software company doing demand generation. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Uh, most recently working for a, a MarTech company here in South Carolina and, then, uh, you know, the coronavirus uh, sort of ravaged the the industry, and uh, we lost a lot of clients, and and so I was let go. But I had been doing my, I had been writing for Advertiscope, my blog, and uh, writing a lot of things about SaaS marketing, especially B two B SaaS marketing, and so I was I'd already I'd already been getting leads through that, and so. I just transitioned into doing that full time, which was always a dream of mine to be to be able to be my own boss. Um, you know, growing up, my dad he's always been his own boss, so I always looked up to him, and that was a, a big part of of what drove me. Uh, but I thought my my wife is a teacher, and the so this was not the ideal time to do it. And I probably would have waited uh, two or three more years if I hadn't been forced into it. But as as these things often go, it actually turned out to be the best thing that could have happened to me uh, because very quickly I was able to uh, to be in a position where now I, I don't have to to worry about working for somebody else other than my clients, which I really enjoy. For some reason, the for some reason I enjoy that that client having a relationship with clients rather than, than an employer. And so that's, that's been really great. Wow. That's, uh, that's quite the journey. <laughs> you're the first, yeah. <laughs> I think you're probably one of the first person I've talked to 
that uh, COVID actually pushed them pretty hard into, okay, now I'm going to go pursue kind of my side hustle, right? Uh, yeah. Which, which is great. I mean, you know, it's interesting how pandemics accelerate a lot of things. I, I've it's always, true. Yeah, it's aw- awesome in one sense, but then not so awesome in the other sense. Well, exactly. And, you know, that's the it, – it, it feels kind of weird because, um, you know, I, I am doing – doing well for myself, but at the same time, you know, there are so many people out there who are really struggling. Um, people who are close to me are, are really having a lot of trouble, but at the same time, it's nice for me to be able to be in a position where, uh, where I can help them out and, uh, and, you know, do what I can. So, uh, overall, yeah, for me, it's been, it's been a good thing, but at the same time, I'm really looking forward to being able to get out of the house again. <laughs> yeah, no, me too. I mean, I, I'm in San Francisco and, you know, I live in a city so I can enjoy a city <laughs> as opposed yeah. to just, you know, being in my apartment all day. I mean, I, I'm not in it all day, but, you know, the, there's certain trappings of being in a city. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm curious, what what did you run for in your political? Uh, I ran for state house. So I was taking a legislative process course from the uh, the clerk of the South Carolina state house. And he was, he always told us that here in South Carolina, we actually have very few attorneys. There's always this thought that there's a ton of attorneys who run for office and there are, but actually in South Carolina, at least it's much more like uh, people in insurance and things like that who are, um, who are kind of running our government. And there's actually a fair amount of times when developing laws that it's actually can be beneficial to have an attorney yeah, around. So, sure. so he put, really pushed us to do that. And we had a, there was a special election in my hometown, which was about an hour and a half from school. And so I decided to run for it and it was uh, an interesting experience. I had to go to school and a lot of it was happening during finals. So I was, in class. And then I would go on Fridays to, to be available for, uh, to, you know, to meet with people. And, uh, I go and knock on doors on the weekends and I did a lot of marketing for myself, which was the, my favorite part about it. And, uh, what I enjoyed about politics in general was that, that marketing side of it. Um, but yeah, so, and of course I didn't win, but I, there were five people running and I, two of them, or in fact, I think, I think four, I think almost all of them were either retired or self-employed and had all this time to and money to do all these different things. Um, so I was really pleased to come in third place and, oh, great. um, you know, to, at least I wasn't last. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it was, it was a great experience and one that I, I don't know if I would rule it out, but I think I'm, I think I'm probably more likely to finish a novel than I am to, to run for office again. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm involved with politics here in San Francisco. Um, not a lot anymore, not a lot lately, but I, I just really appreciate the fact that people run, um, and Mm -hmm. being a candidate is a hard, hard thing. I mean, it's, you know, people say, Oh, you know, they're doing it for the power and the prestige or whatever. And, 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 you know, there may be a certain part of that, but I mean the scrutiny, the public scrutiny, the the so much time. I mean your time is just not your own. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always thought 
that, you know, I've been a part of some campaigns and I always looked at the, the candidate and, you know, I, I could see how hard they're working and for whatever their motivations, you know, they, it varies, of course. But boy, talk about a process that is extremely revealing to oneself, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, this whole marketing yourself thing, I, I that, that's the reason why I wanted to pull on that thread because, boy, a lot of entrepreneurs should learn from politicians the good things about that of course not mm-hmm. the bad things but what did right. you learn from being from being a candidate as for political office that now helps you being an entrepreneur so i i really i think you're right about that and there there were a couple of things one of the first things i had to figure out was uh why am i running yeah you know you you have to have a reason that's one of the biggest things that have it's I can't remember who it was, but there was somebody who just sank their entire campaign because somebody said, why do you want to be X? And they, they didn't know they couldn't, they couldn't say, and it's, you know, for anybody, whether it's a product service or, or a candidate, if the person doesn't even know why they're doing it, that's, that's a red flag. So I had to figure out why am I doing this? And then I had to position myself in a way that let people understand why I'm the, the one they should choose. And that, that positioning is something that when it comes to developing a unique selling proposition, uh, you know, figuring out your key differentiator, uh, differentiators, that's been a huge help to me ever since. Uh, but those two things were really big. And then, uh, you know, when you hear people talk about doing things that don't scale, that's a big part of politics because knocking on doors and making phone calls as much as people work on new software and as you can do as much grassroots as you want to get volunteers together to help you with that. It's really hard to scale personal engagement with voters, yeah. but it's, it's very important. Yeah. And that grassroots approach is something that especially working with smaller startups it's hugely important. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm with you. I mean, I, again, all the politicians that I know and seeing them and being on some of their campaigns, uh, the amount of time they had to spend with people, that personal time clearly doesn't scale because there's only right. so many hours in the day. Uh, but boy, the impact of that is remarkable. And I think for startups, especially young startups, that mentality of hitting the pavement, knocking on doors, really being intimate with the customer and spending the time. And of course, I know, of course, it doesn't scale because it can't. But I just know like in local politics, you know, grassroots, you know, knocking on doors, calling people, being interactive is like absolutely critical. I mean, here in San Francisco, it's critical. I mean, you can't can't be a candidate around here without kissing babies and knocking on doors. I mean, yeah. now now it's going to be a lot harder uh, since we're still in the COVID thing. And we actually do have an election coming up in, in November. So, but that's so fascinating because, you know, I always like to see or try to get at the heart of how other things apply to other things. So what's the crossover between entrepreneurship and politician, right? Mm-hmm. And then the converse is true too. As a bureaucrat, uh, politico, city worker, et cetera, how can you take entrepreneur skills 
and creativity and apply that to government because I'm actually on this task force right now. We're trying to figure out how to reopen San Francisco and have, have artists and entrepreneurs involved in the policy process. And it's fascinating. <laughs> the thought process is like, yeah, you, why are we talking about money? They're like, oh, we can't afford it. It's like, no, no, stop, stop. Look, no, no. Let's not worry about the money until we have a plan. Then we'll go figure out how to pay for the plan. Don't don't constrain yourself by the economics that you don't even know what the economics are yet, right? Stuff like that, right? Um, so how how do you how do you do that with your with your clients? I mean, it's I mean, it sounds like you got a very unique one, a very unique position to come from, which I think is sorely needed. One of um, what's your why, which I totally agree with, and then you know hitting the pavement. You know, the answer is not in the building. Like if you want to go for quote unquote scale, that comes later. You got to get the fundamentals. I mean, if you scale the wrong thing, it just doesn't make sense, right? Uh, how does that process work with with the clients that you're working with? One thing for me, I have to really, when it comes to things that don't scale, one thing that really does scale is is PPC. And so for me, I lean on that a lot Mm. and I have to remember that especially in the early stages, you may not, it may not be time for that. I mean, for one thing, you know, nothing kills a, uh, a bad product faster than good marketing. And (laughs) yes. And and for another thing, you don't know if you're doing good marketing or not. I work with a lot of category creators, people who are, who are meeting unmet needs that, people don't even realize they they have the problem but they don't even realize that it's a problem that can be fixed yeah and it kind of reminds me i i grew up not being somebody who is really a handyman and i would walk into this room in my house growing up and, and i was just like man i can't turn the fan on because it's making this noise and it's like the fan is hitting this the light and it gets hot in here. I can't have any air going. And then one day I just realized like, all I need to do is take a screwdriver and screw in that propeller. So it's not hitting the, hitting the light anymore. And then I felt like a genius. <laughs> and, and actually ever, ever since then, I actually now, you know, my, I spend so much time in the garage and I love, um, well, I would not at all consider myself a, a, a true craftsman, but I love to build things yep, to yep. put my other things on. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, I, 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 anything that requires no precision. I just like <laughs> nailing two by fours together, but it's, it's so much that way yeah. with, with everything there are people don't even think about, it. I had a product that, that I was working, uh, I was working for them. They had a, a, a very specific, uh, product, but it could do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And I went into Reddit just trying to do some market research. And I just, I knew what the product did. And I just asked, is there something that, what, how would I do this? Mm-hmm. And they said, everybody said, oh, you can't do that. Or that, and they, but it took them forever to even understand what I was looking for. Right. So that's, that's such a huge problem when you're, you're trying to say, how do I, how do I, how do I get people to understand what this can do when they don't even fully understand the problem. Um, and of course that's where you the whole inbound marketing and uh, the content marketing education yeah. that right. comes in and it's very important, but it, it's not something that 
many people focus on and it's it it's sometimes hard to show the ROI there but you kind of have to you have to check that box figure that out before you can move on to the things that you know have a more demonstrable ROI yeah no i, I have the same problem in you know i run now a pr and marketing firm that um, my late wife started um you know she she passed away uh, 3 years ago from leukemia and um you know when i i started to run it while she was sick and everyone would always ask me you know i have an engineering background as most people know so i'm like very analytical and you know yeah. like show me the numbers like this you know pay per click you know thing is like ah oh, i get it you know i've done a little bit of that it's not my expertise but i understand the feedback loop like feedback loops for me closing the loop making sure that you get that feedback to kind of spin up the flywheel, right? Mm -hmm. I totally get all that. And I remember someone asked me, and it was a client, they were a technical product, and they're like, so what's the return on all this PR and marketing? Like, how do I know you're being successful <laughs> to me? And I'm like, well, that's a great question because, <laughs> you know, I, some days I don't even know why <laughs> it's successful, right? I don't. I, sometimes it's black magic, sometimes it's alchemy. And it's a lot of both, right? But not black magic, sorry. It's mostly alchemy because there's a lot of good things that you do to pull together to pull something else. And there's a lot of creativity and, and there's metrics and stuff. But like, I don't know what your ROI is on PR spend. Like, what's your return on PR spend, right? Um, right. And then so what I started to think about, and, and, and this is why I really like your approach, is that there's a baseline level of PR and marketing that every company must do like absolute bottom. Like you can't not do it because you have to have that baseline in order to jump up and figure out what campaigns will work. So if you don't have that baseline level, if you don't have some sort of cadence of PR marketing, even ads, like there's a, there's a basal level of activity mm -hmm. you will have no idea what your ROI could be. Right. But you have to have that minimum. And that minimum is the cost to play in the game. I, I, do, would you agree with that? Definitely. It's, I definitely, I definitely agree. And I think part of the issue is that you see, thanks to all the data that we can, that we can get now, there is people want to only focus on the things that they can track. Yeah. So it's almost like, you know, if you had a metal, you got a metal detector and it's like, wow, this thing is really good at detecting metal. And, but that doesn't mean that things that aren't metal don't have any value. You know I mean? It's totally, like, totally. we can't, a lot of the things that, that we do that are valuable. And there's a guy named uh, Chris Walker, um, who's always talking about this on LinkedIn and the importance of, of doing these things that, that happen earlier. Uh, that happened before you get to that point. And we've got this over-reliance on data now, and it's led to this extreme shift towards direct response uh, style marketing, which we we were too far the other way at first. People were on doing Facebook marketing and just tracking how many people liked them and things like that, which that definitely can be absurd and it probably tends to usually 
absolutely be absurd. You know, it doesn't really matter how many people like you on Facebook, yeah. especially now that you're not going to get any organic reach anyway. No. Yeah, totally. But we've, we've gone so far that I, a guy, I really, um, a guy I really respect uh, named Bill Reynolds. He is, uh, he's one of the VPs at that, uh, at the, the MarTech company I worked at before I went out on my own. And he was telling me that he was sitting in on a seminar and the guy was talking about how, if you can't measure it, it's worthless. And the guy said, well, I mean, what about the advertising that Coke does? I mean, you can't, all the branding they do. I mean, you're able to, they're able to go in this C lift and, you know, you can break things down and do look at year over year uh, stats and things like that. But just because you can't fully encapsulate the value in terms of some KPI doesn't mean that it's worthless. I agree. I agree. I always think that there's the cost to play the game. It's what I like to say. And the cost mm-hmm. to play the game in a business is there's a certain level of PR and marketing that you have to do and you just have to do it and you just got to suck it up and you got to yeah, stop trying that, to metricize. That's your buy-in. That's, that's table your, stakes. Yeah, that's table stakes, right? That's your buy-in. And I think we have to start talking more about that is – you know, PR, marketing professionals, you know, we, we do similar things. You, you and I just, I think you, you probably do it in a different way. But, you know, I'm always trying to get across like the why and the story and what's the narrative because a lot of that stuff drives the rest of the digital strategy. It also drives the ad strategy. It also right. drives the message. And if that's all, you know, disjointed, you know, no amount of, you know, a- analytics on pay-per-click, analytics on, you know, email capture from a Facebook ad or whatever, or Instagram or whatever your favorite metric is, or is going to matter. But yeah, I mean, I, I, it is interesting that, yeah, maybe I should think about writing a piece on that, like the, your buy-in. I like that. I I really like that, that, that kind of metaphor. Like this is the buy-in for business. If you don't do it, like don't expect any of that other stuff to work because I do think you need that baseline level. I used to call it the, well, I still do, the kind of the marketing and PR cadence. Like people need to know you're alive <laughs> and yeah. you're doing stuff. Because uh, one time I had a client, potential client, they they said, hey, oh, we're going to launch a product. I'm all, oh, great. Yeah, we're going to do it in a month. And I'm all, a month? Like, yeah. <laughs> you can't, <laughs> like, is this like PR marketing an afterthought? They're like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll just want it to go viral. I'm like, what? Viral? What? <laughs> What planet yeah. are you on? <laughs> you know, and and I, I didn't take the gig, and and I said, hey, I gave him some advice, like, look, you know, this is the, you know, the the buy-in for your business or whatever. Which again, great, great, it's a really good concept. You should write a book on that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I kind of feel like I was riffing off your idea. Well, you, I mean, you write it. Oh well, well, maybe we both write it then. How's that? <laughs> well, we write an article, we cross post on each other's blogs because, like, I really think this is important. Yeah. Oh, and more people need to be talking about it. And, I, yeah. and I'm seeing that more people are. So that that is heartening. Uh, let, let me ask you this. What kind of engineer uh, were you? Uh, I was electric, are you? Le- uh, electrical engineer. Okay. Electrical engineer. I, there's something. Uh, so I don't know. I have a very small sample size of one person. <laughs> but I just know that one of the best CEOs that I ever worked for was um, a guy named Derek Peterson, who was a mechanical engineer. Uh-huh. And I think there's something about that um, engineering mindset that I just wonder if that's not a, if that doesn't sort of 
have some kind of good crossover when it comes to being a CEO. I don't know enough about engineering to know what that would be, but it, it's interesting to me to see. And then, of course, software engineers are, you know, seem to do relatively well as well. But that may be more because uh, of their background in software than engineering. Well, yeah, I mean, so uh, yeah, that's actually a good point. Um, there is some great advantages to having an engineering mind, not only for running a company, but actually in politics, basically in everything. It's mm-hmm. when you take the extremes of it that it gets it breaks down. So most engineers love to solve problems. That's why they became engineers. Yeah. They see problems in everything. If you ask an engineer, how's it going? They will list 25 problems they're trying to solve before they even get to the point where they're like, yeah, I did right. something good today, right? <laughs> and uh, I used to have a, a mentor, actually still is a mentor in um, one of the companies I founded, a guy named Jeff. And he would always tell me, Jari, you have to tell the whole truth. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm, I, I've got all the, I've, I'm telling the whole truth. He said, no, you're not. Like, you're only sh- talking about the problems. What about the, the solutions? What about the wins? What about the good stuff? I'm like, who cares about the good stuff? And, like, <laughs> and, and he's like, management cares about the good stuff because, right, if you don't tell the whole truth, they're going to think that everything's a problem. They're going to think the world's in chaos. They're going to think you're not doing your job. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm doing my job. I, I got all these problems to solve. I'm solving all these problems. And he's like, yeah, but you just focus on the problems. And so engineers love problems and they love systems. They love yeah. frameworks. They love just anything with a process. Just They just love that. And the reason is, is because the world to them has to be organized. Um. Which if you're running a massive company, that's a great skill set to have. But if you're trying to be creative and you're trying to think outside the box and you're trying to like push the envelope a little bit, you're trying to be like a little more like more of an artist or, a, you know, more free, like a writer mm-hmm. or whatever, eh, got to have, it's tough-er. But, but yeah, I, I can see that. I've seen, I've seen lots of both depending on like the type of company. So interesting that you should mention that. Huh. What, what, um, totally off topic. What, 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 what was the kind of novel that you were thinking about writing? I know we talked a little bit about that ahead of time. Well, I think one of my weaknesses is maybe that I don't really, when it comes to fiction, I didn't really, I didn't really have a lot to say. I didn't have a why my why was just that I thought it'd be cool to be, to write a novel. Because yeah. I've always loved reading novels. And so every time I would come up with some idea for a novel, it was always like something really weird because I felt like I had to have something interesting about it because I didn't really have anything to say. So it just had to be that like, well, they may not, I may not have anything to say, but won't people think it's really interesting to read a story about a guy who was like disembodied by a teleportation machine <laughs> and then had his like mind magnetically sucked into the brain of an alien or something weird, you know? Yeah, super cool. Super cool. <laughs> and uh, so but th- those were always, I had all these strange ideas and I never really got them off the ground. And maybe, maybe one day that, that will be, that's the thing that probably that I need to work on is, is figuring out, what I want to say, because when it comes to nonfiction, when it comes to writing things for marketers, uh, like I do on my blog, I have a very, I have a point of view. I have 
things that I think uh, or that I found to work and and a I have a a process that I like to to walk people through and and to help them get their get things together and get themselves to where they have an action plan. But when it comes to fiction writing, I I don't think I have a, a strong enough point of view. And when I think about some of the more interesting novels out there, like uh, if you ever read Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, oh yeah, or, I have. You know what I mean? And, and even like, uh, even in that, the the judge or whatever his name was. I mean that that guy. That's a pretty interesting character. Or the uh, or the the hitman, the Javier Bardem character in No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Um, yeah. also Cormac McCarthy, right? But yeah. uh, it's, uh, there's very, you can still do really interesting stuff, but he's saying something. He doesn't tell you exactly what he's saying. You know, there's all kinds of people interpreting different ways, but it really seems as though he was trying to say something, <laughs> which just makes for a better book in my opinion. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and, you know, when we, when we talked a little bit before we started recording, you were talking about story grid and huh, why you liked story grid and like listening to Sean and, and Tim talk about their journey, especially Tim's journey uh, on writing the threshing, which if you haven't read, I would highly recommend you read. Um, it's actually a really, it's a, I guess it's a YA type, you know, um, uh-huh. book, but really well done. I mean, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, we've, you know, been listening to tim grouse about it for three years on the <laughs> podcast and it's actually good that he finally got it out and, and i'm i'm actually not a huge fan of that genre mm-hmm. but i can really appreciate you know how he the pacing and what he tried to do and you know it's a dystopian world and it's it, he did a good job and I, I know he's working on the second one right now and but what's really cool is that the process right the that's what story grid's all about it's the you know, the problem is the problem. You're not the problem. Follow the process and the process takes care of itself. That's how you write, at least in the story grid universe, yeah. um, which is still predicated to your point on a why. Like, Why do I have to tell this story? That's, I think you can take that from the marketing, from books, from the politician. I think the whole kind of ecosystem of what people try to do with their lives all boils down to, well, why do you want to do it? And and I think you made a great point about it's not the external trappings. It's like the inner why, like in, you know, what's your, what's your internal mindset? Like, like in your heart, why do you really want to do this? And that's a powerful thing. Cause as you know, there's ups and downs in the world and those external trappings may not come. You may not get the fame, fortune, prestige. You may not get elected. You may come in third, which good right. job anyway. You know? <laughs> I mean, you learned. I mean, what did you learn? Like, oh, maybe I don't want to do this. I, I know I know from my own experience, people had actually at one point said, oh, yeah, you should run for local supervisor. And I just remember talking to all the, the candidates and we had all these sit downs and I looked at the amount of effort. And then I met uh, London Breed, who is now the mayor of San Francisco, but back then was running for supervisor. And I just remember looking at her, we had talked, I mean, it must've been three or four hours, just really in-depth conversation. And, and that she's trying to feel me out, right? I'm trying to feel her out. And I remember she said, so, uh, so you're going to run? <laughs> and I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember the cafe. I remember sitting down and I said, 
I don't have a chance in hell against you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so no, but how can I help? Right. That was, that was the beginning right. of our, our friendship and, and, and my, my involvement with her. And, and I just felt like what a process, what a process to go through and so much learning. And, and I think it, I mean, writing a book is not the same as being a politician, but this whole like selling yourself idea, really powerful. Um, and the why in a lot of ways is your fuel because yes, for instance, with politics, the going does get tough writing a book, the going does get tough marketing, your marketing a startup for somebody else, starting a startup, uh, yourself, like, uh, you know, Derek Peterson, the guy I mentioned earlier, when he started fusion web clinic, I mean, he wasn't taking a salary. He had been a, he was a mechanical engineer, I can only imagine getting, making the big bucks. He was working for some big oil company and then, but he just had this drive to be an entrepreneur. And if you don't have a reason, then it's going to be really hard when you get to that, whether it's that, that sticky point in your book where you just don't know what's supposed to happen next or, or if it's, you know, something happens during your campaign. I, I remember some guy, poor guy, down here in South Carolina was running and he, uh, he, he tripped and he fell and he broke his leg. Oh no. And so that's bad enough. And then he, uh, his campaign manager photoshopped his head onto somebody else's body. Cause they didn't want a picture of him in a wheelchair and they needed a new picture, but oh. the picture, the body that he put his head on was in a lot better shape than his real body. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you know, so just terrible things can happen. And, Murphy's law is a real thing and yes. you've got to be ready to, because yes. even if you lose, even if you never finish your book, even if you finish it, nobody cares about it. You want to know that you had a reason for doing it. So you don't have to feel like, Oh, why did I do that? You want to be able to answer. I was like, well, this is why I did it. It didn't yeah. work, but at least I know what I was, what I was aiming for. Oh yeah. <laughs> Man. Oh, that's just awful. I remember. <laughs> okay. I got to share a political story. I'm so, yeah. this is great. I can, I can t- finally talk with someone about this stuff on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I remember um, it was London's first supervisory campaign, you know, um, running against an incumbent, um, and we're at a like a one of those political like clubs. Yeah, I'm sure you had to go to those like Democratic oh, yeah. club, whatever, whatever. Like, yeah. There's so many of them, right? And um, after the thing, you know, I was sort of her with her that day. And after after we did all the thing, there's a reporter outside wants to ask questions and stuff. And they he he was talking about like you know oh you're just in the pocket of the former mayor who's Willie Brown was Willie Brown. And he's just riding her pretty hard, right? I mean, really hard. Like, you know, and I could tell she's getting more and more upset because it was pretty disrespectful in, in one uh-huh. sense. And then she said something <laughs> that I'm like, oh, no, here we go. And I'm like trying to I'm trying to pull her away from him, right? Like literally yeah. like, oh, this is not going to go wrong. And it, it's, a, it's, it's like the faint – it's probably one of the most famous things early on in her career, right? And I can't uh-huh. say the words because they're really bad words but because <laughs> I want to keep this, you know, family friendly. But right. I just remember going, oh, we're sunk. <laughs> we're sunk. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next day – uh, you know, the, the article came out and people were 
were like really like way to go. Like I'm glad you stood up for yourself and you know all these things. I mean, That's the, great. you know, the way she did it was not as you know well as it should have gone. And you know, she apologized for using that kind of foul language and shouldn't do that. You know, and and you know, she was legitimately like I could tell, like, wow, you're just frustrated and tired. And when you're on the trail. I mean, it's just, it's a grind and, you know, you get hungry and you're at your 20th meeting. <laughs> you've got all these people yeah. in your face and you've, you know, you're bathed in hand sanitizer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know what? I, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. I mean, I, I've, I've come to really appreciate the people that put themselves out there. And I know a lot of it's an act and I know a lot of it's like, okay, look, I know what you're trying to do. And, but I, I really have become to really appreciate the people that put themselves out there. And I typically give them the benefit of the doubt and what people write about them. I know most of it's like false. Cause I remember like, I mean, that one time was actually true, but I remember like so many other times where I'm like, that's not what she said. That's not what I said. I mean, I even would get yeah. misquoted. Um, so I have an appreciation for that, but <laughs> that was like, oh no, we're sunk. And then the next day it's like, oh no, we're not sunk. You know, just apologize, yeah. you know? Wow. Photoshop oh, on a nicer looking body. Oh man. Poor, uh, yeah. Poor guy. And he was a really nice guy. And, and you know, he did know why he was doing it. He was a very, a uh, principled person, and and he was really he was one of those people where I think a lot of times the the people who win turn out to be the people who are uh, often just in it for prestige or yeah uh, you know those sorts of things that are less admirable. But the people who lose so often are these people who just really believe in what they're doing, and and he is one of those people. And so it was, it was so sad to see him get torn apart like that because I mean, that's just, that's what people are out there to do. And it, it just gets more and more uh, difficult to go out there and be a human being. Yeah. I mean, and you know, he, you know, they made a legitimate mistake or, you know, I mean, it, it, I always, you know, it's like the fog of the campaign or the fog of war. Yeah. You, know, you, you looked at, if you, I don't know if you ever saw the movie by McNamara, which was sort of his atonement for Vietnam. It was literally called the fog of war. Um, mm -hmm. You know, okay, I, I can see during the time, you know, things get a little weird and, you, you know, you're in your bubble. But, you know, if if you're trying to do the right thing, and I, and I truly believe chances are most people are, or at least the right thing that's aligned <laughs> sometimes in their yeah. self-interest, sometimes not. Um, but real, I mean, just like, again – just like in being an entrepreneur, just like being an author, like that solid why, that guide star, the thing that you're like looking for, like if no one saw you doing it, would you still do it? Would, you mm -hmm. know, all the trappings are gone. Like what's in your heart, you know? And, and I think that's just such a powerful thing. Yeah, it is. And the, the fog of war is very, the, the fog of, uh, entrepreneurship is is uh just as foggy sometimes and it, you know with a book you're especially a, a first book you're usually just doing it on your own and there's nobody to get frustrated with there's nobody to 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 battle with and that's something really to remember when you are working for a for a smaller startup or even a larger one people are 
I genuinely believe people are almost always just trying to do the best they can do. And what happens is when you get in those foggy situations, you start going down one trail and then eventually you feel like you've gone too far to go back. And it doesn't make sense to somebody who maybe is, uh, you know, maybe they're a new hire or maybe they're um, just, they're not stressed in the same way. So they don't, they maybe are able to think more clearly or maybe they don't have all the facts. There's so many different things that go into it. And I, I do try to view people's intentions as, as charitably as I can, because very few people are as, as monstrous as the, the sorts of characters that you might read about in a bad book where it's just like a one dimensional villain with no, <laughs> no purpose other than to destroy people's lives and take over the world. Yeah, <laughs> that's certainly true. Yeah, I wish uh, wish more people had that perspective. I really think it, we need more of that. You know. Well, hopefully one day the uh, hopefully one day the the internet will will help us get there. I I th- I thought it was going to be a, more of a force for good, and and I I think it certainly has been in so many ways. But at the same time, it's. Uh, things are very divisive right now. And I I think a lot of that is just because we're just able to be at each other's throats on Twitter all the time now. Yeah. Yeah. It's different when you can see, look someone in the eye. Yeah. You know, I mean, and and it's not even decorum. I, I think it's just the reality that they're human. There's a humanity there. That's hard to communicate across the internet. I mean, even some of the most, during those campaign, that campaign, others, even this, you know, the, the enemy, so to speak, you know, the, the other candidates, um, when we would get together and be in the same room, you know, uh, a little nicer, I think. And, 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 you know, even though we didn't, of course, they weren't our candidate, it's like, okay, I can see your point, you know, you're trying, I get it, yeah. you know, and, and, and that's, I think that's a humanity that's missing in the internet. I really do. And I think you said it great that way. Um, it's hard to, yeah. and I, I was a, uh, one of my biggest regrets, um, is one of the first campaign I ever worked on, I was doing their social media and I was, um, working for the candidate who eventually won. And he was running against a, a guy who I went to high school, uh, his dad, he was wow. running against uh, a friend of mine's dad. And I, the, the the guy we were, I mean, the guy mentioned me in his like valedictorian speech, you know, it was like, he was a, a nice guy. And, uh, but his dad was running against the guy I was working for. And so I just was, you know, I mean, like I'm, I'm a amateur cartoonist and I was like writing, making these like insulting political cartoons oh, and just wow. all kinds of stuff. And I just, I felt like at the end of it, when we won, the uh we ran into some of the the people on the other side and um i, I don't think it's possible that i had <laughs> enough influence for this to be uh the sole result of uh, of what i had done but you know i know they were really mad and i, I yeah. don't feel, <laughs> yeah. i don't feel like my old friend took it very well and i haven't talked to him since then so uh, that was very early on in my in my career and i like to think that I learned a, a valuable lesson about that and uh and you know 
hopefully won't lose any more friends because <laughs> yeah, of I politics. Always, yeah, my I always my my rule was we don't draw first blood. So yeah, <clears throat> I cordial, fact based, but then if someone comes after us, that's not cool. Because I, I never you get the knives out. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Again, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And 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 I would always try, and it was, it's hard to do because, of course, negativity works, right? And that's the that's the that's the thing that pisses me off the most. You know, it's like I would much rather be fact driven and like, look, we generally have a disagreement. Okay, fine. Like even you know. Like, again, doesn't matter what part of the political spectrum you're on. My whole philosophy is that if you sit down with someone over a meal to talk over coffee, doesn't matter where you guys come from or gals or whoever, however you identify, um, you will find a common ground. And most of that common ground is like, look, I just want to be successful. I want my family to be safe and I want to enjoy my life. I mean, there's no, there's hardly any, when you go, you know, person to person, there's, there's not a lot of animosity, even if those people happen to be actually, you know, even in some cases, maybe racist or whatever. Like there's a lot, a lot of spectrum of folk, um, mm-hmm. but we all kind of want the same thing. So, wow. You're an amateur. You didn't tell me you're an amateur cartoonist. Now you got to send me some cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it. I will. Cause I'm, I was looking to try to do a little bit of that just cause it's super fascinating to me. It's uh, a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And there's a great uh, website. I think it's called drawabox.com. Oh, okay. And if you, if cool. you just want to get started and with uh, doing some, some basic art that I, I found that to be a really interesting website. Draw a box. I'm going to write that down. Cause I have a hard time even drawing a box. <laughs> <laughs> well, by the time you're done with that uh, tutorial, you will be able to draw a box and hopefully more. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Hey Roy, this has been such a great conversation. I wish it could go on forever, but uh, gotta, gotta wrap it up and um, good luck, you know, with, with your new company. So awesome that you, you kind of started it during a pandemic and that it's going well and, you know, just good luck to you. Thanks, Jari. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. If you have a family relying on your income, you need life insurance. But finding the best quote shouldn't take a lifetime. That's where Policy Genius comes in. In minutes, Policy Genius could save you 50% or more simply by comparing quotes from America's top insurers. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team handles all the paperwork and red tape. 
To save on life insurance and get protection for you and your family, head to PolicyGenius.com today.